Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, I saw a new project called Rebar Hank, and this is actually coming out of the Erlang community. So Rebar3 underscore Hank is the name of this library. And the purpose here is that it detects dead code in Erlang projects and reports it. So if Hank targets any code, you can be 100% sure that it's dead. So Elixir does some of this kind of stuff where it can say, hey, you have a local variable that's not being used or a private function that's not being referenced. And this is something actually different. It goes a little further than that. We have a link to the GitHub project, which you can check out. But what's interesting here is they have some other stuff where it has detection for unused macros. Now, macros in Erlang is a little bit different than the way we have macros in Elixir. But it's just the idea that it can detect something that's used only once, as opposed to not at all, even. So like if it's used only once, then maybe you should just inline that code instead of having it being used uh, as an Erlang macro. Other things are unused record fields. So that's similar to a, a struct field in Elixir. And I don't think right now we're not detecting if one's not used, but declared. Then unused callbacks, unused configuration options, unnecessary function arguments, and some more stuff that I don't actually understand what it means really. So, But what I thought was really cool here is that this could be inspiration for some similar type of code detection and dead code detection in Elixir projects. Because I don't actually know how this works, if it's like regexes or interrogating the AST. Interesting stuff though, but it's part of the Beam community and I wanted to make sure we touched on it. So there, there are projects out there in the world that do similar things. There's one that's called Unused, and the website's you know, unused.codes. I think that one is written in Scala, but it, the, the idea there is that it's uh, tokenizing your code. And I, I have a feeling that that's what Hank is doing here, too. It's tokenizing the code somehow and then just checking to see if those tokens are used anywhere. Hank, at least, has to have some understanding of, like, where the token is used. <laughs> so it has to know that this is a callback or a config option or a record or something like that. I don't think unused codes, that other uh, project is, is that in depth. <laughs> so Hank is probably way better for Erlang projects. But the cool part about unused codes is that it also works on Elixir projects. So there could be something there if you're interested in that. I also want to mention there's mix unused as well that uh, does uh, similar things but for Elixir. So yeah, there's there's projects out there. If you're interested in cleaning up your dead stuff, call out your dead. <laughs> use Mixed Unused, maybe. Maybe use Rebar 3 Hank. There's lots of good tools out there. Uh, I love that reference there. They're like, bring out your dead code. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next up, xdoc 0.29.1 is out. And this includes an initial support for media prints for cheat sheets. Cheat sheets, cheat sheets, cheat sheets. <laughs> Say that a bunch of times fast. This is actually kind of cool. There's there's a cheat sheet for writing cheat sheets. <laughs> so it's pretty cool how to see that laid out and all the different options that you can write a cheat sheet in. Yeah, the whole idea of having a cheat sheet for writing cheat sheets seemed very meta to me in a very non-Facebook way, which I think is a good thing. <laughs> They stole the meta name. You can't say meta anymore. <laughs> I, was, I was so mad when they renamed meta. <laughs> I was like, don't take that word away from me. It's so stupid. <laughs> but seriously, though, the xdoc thing and the, this cheat sheet is actually a really nice way to check out how it actually looks and how it's going to show up in the sidebar. So you can follow a link to that in the show notes. Next up, it looks like Ecto SQL Extras got a new feature. So if you're unfamiliar, ectosql extras is a package of a bunch of goodies that connects to postgres and there's a, gives you a whole bunch of APIs where you can just get all sorts of insights and more famously known for being integrated with a phoenix live dashboard. So they've added the option now to see in phoenix live dashboard all of your active postgres connections. So that's pretty cool. We'll drop a link in the show notes, but if you're interested, there's there's a whole lot more than just connections. There's links to how to optimize and just all sorts of good stuff there. I also saw a new Paraxial.io post titled Securing Elixir Phoenix Applications, Five Tips to Get Started. 
And I'd recently posted a CI CD guide for Elixir projects using GitHub Actions. And there were two new things that I spotted in this guide that I hadn't seen before, and I wanted to pass those along. One is a project called mix underscore audit. This provides a mix depths.audit task to scan a project's mix dependencies for known Elixir security vulnerabilities. That assumes that there's already been a vulnerability reported on another package, but if it has, this will alert you to it. Then there's another one that's already built into hex called mix hex.audit. And this shows all hex dependencies that have been marked as retired. So a retired package means that the maintainers have explicitly declared it as no longer supported or recommended for use. I updated the CI documentation as these are options to stick in there in your normal CI pipeline. But I thought these are great handy little checks because I know if it's not run automatically, I will forget to run this. And that will probably be the time where I'll have forgotten it for like two months. And that will be when there was some kind of vulnerability that was reported and I didn't catch it. We talked about paraxial and preventing service abuse in Phoenix applications in episode 93 when we talked with Michael Lubis. So check that out if you missed it. You, you mentioned how you forget to run these things. I do too. But one tip I've found helpful for myself is when I'm pushing a release for something, the release script in there has like mix hex dot outdated. So this is checking for outdated stuff, not necessarily audit stuff, but you can do the same thing there. And, and it doesn't necessarily block it, but when it's releasing, I get to see the printout of all the outdated libraries out there. So it's just a good little, you know, good little nudge of like, oh, yeah, I'm getting behind on things. <laughs> let's, let's, let's bump those depths. Yeah, that actually reminds me. I was thinking of how I might want to put these in my own CI pipeline. And I was thinking I'd probably want to put them at the end of my check. So my, my tests all pass and everything else passes. And these are like the last run things. So if they fail, I can take that more of as a, oh, I should pay attention to that. That's not actually related to this code fix right now. I can merge that in and override that, get it merged in then start a new branch with a fix for the updating the libraries or something like that. Hey, uh, speaking of keeping things fresh, you know, th- this past week I had some personal projects I was working on and I updated it to Phoenix 1.7, RC0 at the moment. And I, I did the painful route where I just, <laughs> I updated everything, right? Including all <laughs> the templates, the uh, the Heeks things, the, you know, moving into the HTML folders, all of it. It was it was good, <laughs> but it was a lot of work for for an existing you know project with a lot of HTML in there. I mentioned that because somebody else tweeted Nathan Wilson spotted uh, another cool thing, and that's that Chris McCord and other contributors updated the Live Beats project. You know, which which by the way, the Live Beats project is an example of how to create a multi-region clustered real-time Phoenix application. Right, that's that's the example. You know. Phoenix application, if anyone needs to look at one, right? So being a, a good example of, of a Phoenix application, they recently updated it to include all of those core components, all that new Phoenix 1.7 stuff. Hat tip over to Nathan Wilson for spotting that. But I also did that. And yeah, that was a job. <laughs> to re- rework all of your HTML stuff into a component-based kind of architecture. So um, if you need examples, the Live Beats project has been updated and... Maybe not a great example, but the Elixir Stream project was also updated <laughs> to have components. Don't look at that one, though. Go look at the Phoenix Live Beats one. That's that's a good one. Aaron Gunderson created a really cool basic fly.io Phoenix function as a service. That's a mouthful of words there. <laughs> You'll definitely want to go check out the GIF that he posted, but basically... Fly had announced a machine architecture, which means it's fast to spin up and spin down. And Chris McCord had tweeted an example of how that might work. So Aaron Gunderson put it to the test and he shows a little GIF of the service being offline. He curls it and it takes, I don't know, 100 milliseconds or so to spin up. It responds to his his request. And then after he stops making requests about a second or two later, it just spins itself back down. So it's pretty cool. And next up, Advent of Code 2022 starts on December 1st. The Advent of Code is a yearly event offered by Eric Wastel. And every day before Christmas, you can unlock a daily code challenge and solve it with the programming language of your choice. And if you enjoy holiday-themed puzzles and coding challenges, then you probably already know about this. If it's new to you, it's something worth checking out. It's great exercise for both beginners and experienced developers alike. Because often it's pushing you to solve problems that are different than the normal types of problems you would solve. And they get increasingly more 
difficult as they go on. So just heads up, that's going to be coming and starting soon. Yeah, a lot of folks uh, take the opportunity to like pick up a new language. You know, Rust might be in someone's someone's mind, or if you haven't really been writing Elixir, like this is a good opportunity to write some Elixir. It's like algorithmic kind of problems as well. There's some regex problems in there. It's a good set of problems, and it builds up to the Christmas day. So that's a it's a yearly tradition for us now. I think. <laughs> All right, next up, uh, ElixirConf EU 2023 is in Lisbon, Portugal. It's a hybrid conference. It's going to be uh, happening on the 20th and the 21st of April 2023, next year. It's in person and virtual. You know what? Next year is actually closer than I thought, right? We're not we're just about a month away from next year, 2023. But ElixirConf EU 2023 has a, a call for talks and it has a deadline for the call call for proposals here. It's uh, the deadline is on the 11th of December. So if you want to go there and you want to speak, you should get your talk together. <laughs> you got like about two weeks at the time of this recording to get your your talk proposal out there. I hear Lisbon, Portugal is beautiful, so you might want to uh, you might want to just <laughs> take a trip. It'd be good. <laughs> Another conference that's also accepting proposals: Fostum 2023. They'll be having their second edition of the Dev Room completely dedicated to the Beam and all languages running on it. It's an annual conference about free open source software attended by over 5,000 developers. The conference will be Sunday, February 5th, 2023 in Brussels, Belgium. And a couple of housekeeping items. So I have a a website out there. It used to be called utils.zest.dev, but you might have noticed that I had to say several words there to remember. Utils and then zest and then dev, right? (laughs) (laughs) So I decided to merge it with another project I had called elixirstream.dev. So... If you have that bookmarked, it'll redirect. You'll be okay. But just heads up, elixirstream.dev now has a tips section, right? And that's what Elixirstream was about. It was about uh, submitting tips, just cool things you learn, little today I learned kind of stuff. And then I had a util site, which was like our live regex visualizer, the diff generator, which is really helpful for this Phoenix project, by the way, and HTTP sync. It's just a collection of tools. I merged those two projects together. I was getting tired of constantly updating Phoenix stuff. <laughs> and so they're all at the same place now. It's elixirstream.dev. I don't know. I like I like elixirstream. I just like the the, the brand of elixirstream that there's an icon there that's like cool looking. Anyway, <laughs> not n- nothing that was a big. But if, if you have bookmarks to utils.zest.dev, you can throw them away and you can uh, go to elixirstream.dev instead. Yes, and uh, I will say that whenever I was wanting to go and check out the awesome tool you have there for the diff generator, diffing different generated Elixir and Phoenix projects from one version to another version, it's a super helpful resource. But whenever I was going to look for it, I could never remember the domain, which was utils.zest.dev. And I'd always have to go look it up. So Elixir Stream, if nothing else for a rebranding, it's going to be a a real help for me and my memory. (laughs) Yeah, elixirstream.dev. That's all you got to remember now. And last up, as a housekeeping item, starting with the new year, there will be some changes to the format of the show. We'll still be bringing you your weekly Elixir news. However, there may not always be an interview every week. Why the change? Well, the interview portion of the show requires the most work. It's the hours of pre-show prep and post-show work that take the most time for getting every episode out. I may spend hours researching topics and guests and sending out invites, And a large number of those invites either never get through to the guests who are wanting to invite, or they're ignored. For instance, right now, we only have one more interview scheduled from the 10 invites that were sent out. And I know I'm going to be spending a few more hours still just trying to fill out the rest of this year. We still want to bring you great interviews and discussions because we learn from them too. However, it may not be every week that we have an interview. We'll still be there with the news. Hope you'll join us every week for the news and then possibly more. But it's possible there may only be one interview in a month. So I don't know. We're not committing to anything at this point as a, as a promise. But uh, just a heads up for how things may change going forward. And that's it for the news. This episode is brought to you by Fly.io. You know, LiveView has been a game changer for how we build interactive web applications. When you deploy your application physically closer to your users, the experience is even better. That's what Fly.io lets you do. Easily deploy your apps around the world like people do with CDNs. What's more, Elixir and Fly.io feel like they were made for each other. It's so easy to set up clustered applications across data centers. 
Fly.io has over 20 regions around the world ready for your app. The secure WireGuard network means you can securely do cross-region PubSub with Phoenix. So many things become possible now that were just so hard before. Check out Fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today, we're being joined by two guests. We have Philippe Cabasu and Joel Karlbark. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I'm excited to have you guys come because you were both contributing and working on a SpawnFest competition. And you guys did the lively one, which we talked about a bit in our news segment. And I think there's some renaming that's gone on here too with what the project is. But I, I was really excited about this because you guys are doing some really cool stuff with Ecto in Livebook and visualizing things, which I thought was super cool. And when I think of using Livebook for education, and which seems to be where a lot of energy has gone is using Livebook for education. This seems like an awesome tool for being able to help people understand what's going on with Ecto and their databases and their queries. So I'm really looking forward to digging into all of that. But before we go there, I'd love to hear more about you guys. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? Sure, I, I can start. I live in Gothenburg, Sweden. I grew up around here as well. But yeah, I've been living in some other places, but nice to be back. Got my most of my family here. I work as a software developer at a company called Remote. I believe you've had uh, Toby here on the show as well. He's, he's also working at Remote. Yeah, working with Elixir there. And yeah, my, I'm uh, Philippe. I live in Lisbon, Portugal. I've worked at Remote. That's where I, I learned about and worked with Joel. Now I'm working at Superbase. I've started recently and that's it. Yeah, also working full-time Elixir and really glad <laughs> for that. Really, really glad for that. I didn't realize you guys both worked at like Remote and Superbase and had worked together at Remote. That's, that's very nice. So I would love to hear a little bit more about your guys' individual journeys to Elixir. Typically, Elixir is not your first language. So where did you come from before that? So at least for me, everything started with Scala. So I've worked with Scala in the past in a company called Ocado. Since it was a functional language at the time, I started to hear about this Elixir language. But just faint rumors of something that existed, not nothing that I've seen it in production. But then I switched jobs into another company called TalkDesk. And I was really, really lucky to be in a team that was trying out Elixir for one of their authentication systems. It worked really well, even with some caveats. For example, we, we ran at first against the, the common atom error, creating atoms dynamically. We found that error in production, which was fun. <laughs> but then we kind of understood, okay, this is a really strong language. I checked this the other day. We were using 1.3, so not even a formatter existed. It was quite a long time ago, but since then I kind of went, okay, this, this language is the one I want. And most of it was due to the, the selling factor of the OTP and all the work done by the, the Erlang team. Plus, added to that, the syntax was just awesome and useful. And we were able to do really complex stuff without a lot of effort. And those abstractions are so strong that I, I thought, okay, I, I need, this is my life from now on. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to get an Elixir job right away. It was seen as a niche language. But as time goes by, I kind of never left it. I kept developing an Elixir inside projects as much as I could and was fortunate enough to find Remote, where I was able to finally work again in production with Elixir with a really strong team where it just increased my, my level of confidence and, and good quality in Elixir by a lot. And it's the stack I want to specialize in completely. It's it's a beautiful language there. I'll, I, I'm probably going to stick to my guns and defend it a lot. <laughs> Hopefully not blindly, but it's it's for sure the, the stack I've identified the most with. I was also like coming from the JVM before working with Elixir. So lots of Java, some Kotlin. And I had to look, actually look up on my own blog where when I started to get interested in Elixir. But it was like, in late 2013. And I'm pretty sure the reason for that was because at that time at my then like Java job, we had a lot of concurrency issues and I was looking at like other things like Scala, Clojure, 
And Elixir at the time was uh, before the 1.0 release, but it was already like looking very interesting. I heard tons of good things about like the Erlang virtual machine. So that sparked my interest and yeah, started playing around with it with, for personal projects at that time. And then it took maybe, I want to say like maybe three years before I actually got to use it professionally, uh, Elixir. Uh, and since then I've tried to like, yeah, that's what I want to work with. It's nice experience. You can build the types of things I like to build, like services that should be up all the time, always available. That's my journey to Elixir, I think. I would love to learn a little bit more about SpawnFest and the competition that you guys participated in because we we announced it prior to the event and I've always been intimidated by something like SpawnFest where it's like 48 hours, intense competition. You know, like <laughs> sleep is important to me. So I would love to hear what it was like participating in the SpawnFest competition just as, as a group. Like we'll talk about what you built in a minute, but like what is it like being in, in that type of a competition? I think I can go first here because <laughs> to me, I I kind of like did it casual style. I didn't didn't even work like all the hours of the days. No, so let leave out the nights. I I slept through the nights. For me, it was more like a fun experience to kind of do something different with some nice people and like learn something new. Hopefully, that was kind of my personal goal with it. So. I really didn't go like all in hardcore hackathon mode. I was just kind of chilling, to be honest. I honestly really like the intense hackathon kind of thing where you just go all in as many hours as you can, completely fueled by pizza and <laughs> diet coke and whatever. I really like that environment. <laughs> this time it it wasn't the thing that happened because kids. Uh, two kids do not allow me to do that. <laughs> that was going to be my next question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, with two kids, it's just impossible. I've already talked with my wife and said, um, next year, I'll probably schedule vacation and actually get a spot where I can do this as the way I like it, which is all in coding. And even if it's sleeping on the floor, I'll, I'll, I'll be fine with that. Uh, it's side, side project stuff, so it's fine. But yeah, I think that the major element of it is what Joel mentioned, is it do something where you're learning. Uh, I remember my first hackathon uh, ever in this kind of 24-hour intense do it. I actually just wanted to learn RabbitMQ and ended up doing something with RabbitMQ, for example. The main part of it is finding something you want to learn and just apply it and uh, take that as, a, as your goal more than anything else. So as we get into the competition of what you guys actually did, how did you choose your team? So obviously you two knew each other before, but that wasn't the entire team. So tell us a little bit about who you were working with. Actually, everyone was from remote. <laughs> That's the connection. Yeah. Yeah. It was really easy to do a team. Actually, one person wasn't already at remote. Uh, she, she actually was in another company, but we, I tweeted out uh, something along the lines of, I'm thinking of doing this. For SpawnFest, she actually tweeted back and said, can I join? Can we do a team? Okay, that sounds like a cool idea. I'll actually share on the Slack channel from at Remote. And Joel and Tiago joined in. And yeah, that's how they, the, the team was formed. Just a random tweet or a private message. And then, okay, that that let's actually do this. We clicked really, really well. Again, we already knew each other from Remote, which makes everything way easier. And Everyone kind of knows the, the the ways of work of each other, which is uh, really cool to, to be in that spot. So one disclaimer we have to put up, up front is as of this recording, the judging is not done yet. So we don't actually know who won any prizes or anything like that. We were uh, very impressed with what you guys did. Just I was impressed with how much was accomplished in that window of time as well. So why don't you introduce us to what it was that you guys actually built? We've built a small tool set of things that might be useful for newcomers in a new project or even for power users of, a, of an existing project to kind of have reports and, and, and see what's happening in their project using Livebook. The, the capabilities of Livebook, I think, far surpass only learning. It's, it can also be a, a useful tool even for development, uh, for example, if I'm trying to debug something and I want to understand why the 
why is this query taking a bit longer than than usual? Instead of, I don't know, dumping my Postgres plan into some shady website, you, you have something at hand in Livebook. That was the, the, the project role uh, focused the most on. I focused on the entity relationship diagram, which was more in line of, okay, I want to document my my project really well, and I want to have a readme that does this automatically for me. I don't want to update documentation. It's probably one of the worst things that that people kind of despise doing. It's just updating documentation. If you have a live book with this code being generated, it's done for you. So that's a bit the idea. It's just having a tool suite of things that of, of small pieces of, of a puzzle that can actually give you, okay, of better visibility of what you have in your project. Cool. So you went over the entity relationship diagram, the ERD. That's very helpful. You went over the the way that you graph a plan explanation from the query planner, right? Like that's that's good for trying to figure out why a query might be slow. That's like the first place you go, right? So and, and it's usually a wall of text too. So I, I really appreciate like the visual way of presenting how the plan looks and what's like what's slow or not. Because there's some things that you do in there too. Like you highlight red, the square that something might be too long or that it may have overestimated or something like that. Uh, so that's pretty cool. But there's like two other good things that you, I think there's two other things in, in this project that you guys do. One of them is where you take a plain SQL string and you turn it into an Ecto query Okay, we're we're gonna shelve that one for a minute. Okay, that's that's cool. But then there's another thing where you visualize a change set, and I thought that was interesting too. I hadn't thought about visualizing a change set, but that that seems compelling. Tell me about what that is doing. What what is what are what are you visualizing for a change set? So some of the things it's doing is making it clear whether a change set is actually valid or not. That's like a visual indicator that yes, this is good or not really. So that I think that's like, I mean, it's just helpful in especially like if you want to show maybe yeah, document how the change set validations work on your for your schema. This could be a, a nice way to actually just show that. So, so is this visualizing things like that each step in the change set, like a validate required, and that that step is what failed, or what what's what's it visualizing? Yeah, so the er- errors are clearly shown in in just a nice way uh, in in the in the live book. So, I, th- th- I think the change set validator is again one of these little utilities for probably the main use case would be to document your your code in a, in a nicer way. As a reminder, this is not a very used feature, but it's it is super helpful what you guys are doing here for normal elixir projects, right? You can in xdoc you can just, you know, at doc and then give yourself a big, you know, section documenting your your def change set for example. And if you've written this documentation in livebook, your project is going to provide the source for the mermaid graph, right? And xdoc will render mermaid graphs. So if you've, you know, if you wrote the docs here, you copy and paste that into your, your project, your, your, you know, library, what, whatnot, you can visualize how a chain set, you know, what, what steps the chain sets work doing on your schemas. That's super cool. So it's, it's not just for like writing an educational article in my book, right? Well, that's, that's helpful too. But, you know, there's a lot of uh, libraries out there that take advantage of Ecto um, and chain sets. So this is a great way to like visualize it. That's, that's super cool. So we have to talk about the other one that David already teased, which is this query builder. Like, I remember when we when we first read that and then we were talking about the news, like we didn't have any really details on it. And it's like, how does this work? Is it like, you know, because I can just take the SQL and I can just say, you know, query.execute or whatever it is, you know, to just like, but I know that's not it. So I would love to hear more about what this feature is that you guys built. Yeah, and and convince me why I can't just write Ecto or uh, SQL strings now and just pass them through your query builder and in, in production code. Like, why can't I do this? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's an easy one. It's still more what's less than alpha stage. <laughs> yeah, it's really underdeveloped at the moment. But the idea for that one is using Nimble Parsec, 
This was the work from Tiago. And the, basically what he's doing is looking, using Nimble Parsec, he's parsing the, the SQL query. And from there, he's kind of inferring what methods and how to build the, the query itself. So it won't, I think it only works with select and where. So if, if your queries are only focused on that, it should be fine. <laughs> More than that, uh, it probably won't do much, but we, we intend to continue the work there. The, the idea is to, to just keep developing, potentially even kind of having, now that we're kind of thinking on how to move this to open source and properly contribute and, and, and just improve, improve it, uh, way more because our code is too hacky. One thing I think is, is worth mentioning is, is the name. So for the competition, when people see any winners or honorable mentions or anything like that, the project for the competition is called Lively. But since then, you've renamed it and continuing development. So tell us about that. Lively was picked as a name for the team and the project, which was kind of generic. We, could, we, wanted, we knew we wanted to play around with Livebook. So yeah, that's kind of it. <laughs> but as we ended up with this theme of Ecto uh, and yeah, using Keynote to visualize different aspects of Ecto, I think it was Philip who tweeted that, yeah, this is our project, it's lively. And he got a lot of re response on it, uh, a lot of buzz around it. And even Jose Valim, I think, uh, replied, said like, oh, this is actually, sounds more like uh, Kino Ecto to me as a name. And sure. That, that's a great name. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that's that's the uh, the uh, the name nowadays, which we've continued on, done a little bit more things since the hackathon, but not a lot. Like functionality wise, it's the same. We've just kind of like refactored some things, but yeah, that's going to be the 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 place where we'll start evolving these things because as is the the it's like very hackathon level. Um, sort of code. So it's it's very early days, right? You mean you didn't write extensive tests and, you know, 100% code coverage, none of that for the competition? You guys don't write perfect code when you're coding all night long too? <laughs> Fueled by Diet Coke and pizza? We have some tests. <laughs> but yeah, like, like for example, the, the query builder, that's like a really advanced idea really, right? Like translating one language to another in essence, right? That's going to take more time than 48 hours to, to get in a, in a nice shape, I think. So, but yeah, huge shout out to Tiago and Vittoria did so many cool things for this. What I think is fun about the query builder idea is, you know, you have people coming from other languages, other frameworks, where maybe they deal a lot more with large SQL strings in these other frameworks. And maybe just part of their tooling and their libraries are built around that. So having something like a query builder just to help convert it to an Ecto version could be really helpful for those people in that situation. Yeah, at the, at the very least for a basic uh, query, because I know it can get quite complicated in like, especially when you're dealing with like associations, you know, between you know, and, and joins maybe and preloads, that that kind of stuff. Like it, it can get kind of hairy. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> to get like what a good Ecto query would, would be, right? From from just the SQL. Or really, yeah, what you want for the output for this one thing. Like, do you want it to be a partially built up query that you can then return from a function and build up on more? It's like, yeah, it, it's a great starting point, I think. <laughs> that that was the main idea. It's just that first step of, okay, I'm, I'm entering in the Elixir ecosystem. I know that Ecto, well, I'm not going to call it an ORM because that would be a crime, but this <laughs> is the tool that I use uh, to access a database. What do I need to learn about it? How do I build queries with it? How, what's the DSL to actually achieve what I want to do? And that was the idea, just to, uh, to have a, a kind of a friendly way of showing people, okay, this is how you you translate from this SQL, which you are used to, and it's kind of a universal language, into Ecto. And from there, it's, it's, it, it will make it much easier for people to explore Ecto as a tool. Because since they have the roots for it, they, they can start to just, okay, now what happens if I preload? What happens if I add another where clause, for example? A, a big chunk of our idea was really focused on that, on, on that idea of let's give a good learning tool since SQL is learned, it's known by a lot of stacks, 
let's bring that into our corner and try to, okay, you, this is how you use Zacto if you add this query. So that's exactly the idea. You guys are doing this educational content, right? For for teaching. Um, why? What's the <laughs> what are you what are you building? What are you building over there? You guys writing a book? <laughs> <laughs> not yet. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm capable of. Unfortunately, I'm a bit of a job hopper. Some people see that as a, a bad thing. I'm I'm quite happy with my decisions. But one of the things I've felt in all of the in all of the companies is that onboarding usually it's not easy. Due to my job hopping, I kind of feel that uh, okay, I've I've got into a rhythm of learning stuff fast. But still, there's some caveats of, of, a, of a project that are really difficult to understand. And one of them, at least that I've felt a lot of the times, it's just the models that are represented within each company. And there, there are always several ways to do, well, the, the solutions are infinite, that the company chose one, and now it's time to kind of understand and why they chose this route. And I believe that visual tools are way better than, than text tools for that effect. That's where the entity relationship diagram appeared, the idea. Uh, and we just, okay, now we need to scale this up to other ideas. And that's, that's why we kind of went with, with this route. Yeah, it, it is pretty cool how these uh, tools can work together, right? You can start with just a, a schema and then you you feed that schema into the entity relationship, you know, bit that you guys built, and then you can see what that looks like. And then you can do a query, you know, on that. And you can start with a, a regular old SQL string and build the query. So you can do that with the query builder. And then you can feed that into explain, and then you can see how how that that query performs. And then let's say you want to change something, you know, you got your change set validator. So like all these things kind of <laughs> kind of lead in to each other, which is pretty cool. All right, but just to repeat what you just said, though, about like why. So onboarding into companies and understanding the models, yeah, that's definitely, I, I feel that, yeah, that's definitely a thing that that's tough to understand because it's very, it's typically coupled with like domain knowledge, right? And that comes with 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 time. Have you experienced that being more or less difficult with Ecto, you think, to, to understand? Is, does, does Ecto obfuscate? That stuff more than more than you know other other languages you, you think or other tools. Now comes a really strong opinion probably, but I actually bring it. Yeah, <laughs> I really click with Tacto. The fact that the schema is actually decoupled from the queries that helps me a lot in in, in jobs past, for example, in, with Rails and uh, Django. All that magic of you just need a class, you do dot find, and it does the query for you. That for me, it's actually way trickier to understand than, okay, I have a schema, I can work with it. How can I work with it? I just do, I don't know, uh, repo.find. And from that find, I say, this is the entity I'm actually trying to find. There's no magic, it's explicit. So for me, it actually makes it much easier. But again, it's one of those things you either click with it or you don't. So it's, it's, a, really, it's a really tricky question. As a developer, for me, it really works to have a simple schema and a DSL to work on top of it, rather than a lot of magic and just, I don't even know what's happening behind the scenes and it just works. I'm really afraid of that kind of code, of the just works approach. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm way more happy with Ecto. Yeah, I I feel the same. Like Ecto is just the right amount of abstraction over your... Uh, database, I feel like you can still use fragments, for example, if you need to actually, you know, an escape patch into actually writing some SQL. I, I think Ecto does most things really, really well. And I prefer it over other ecosystems' way of, of, of doing database stuff. Um, plus, it's not only for a database, it's right. You can use it for like request validation or like. Schemas are just like, yeah, you can have a schema for whatever you want. So I, I really like Ecto. I also, like the documentation for Ecto is the one I frequent the most, I think, because it's so good and it's like so informative, has all these nuggets in there. It's, yeah, I can't praise it enough, I feel like. <laughs> I, I just have to say how I love Ecto as well. Because <laughs> like, you know, Philippe, you were mentioning how it, it is not an ORM. Right. And one of the things that I, I did in a project 
is I had a three table join and I overrode the select where I had them return a custom struct, right? A struct that's not related to the table at all. And I could join and select into these different fields things from these different tables. And I can just do that. And that's the return of my query. It's that level of abstraction and not being an ORM, not being like the thing that I returned. Like I can do that, right? And I think Ecto is really powerful in that way. I had to do a union between two tables not too long ago. And when, you you know, it's two different tables, right? So you're modeling this new thing that doesn't really exist anywhere. It's just for this query. So yeah, I, I got to... I got to experience that firsthand like this this just this past week. I thought I was going to have to do a much com- much more complicated query but that's of a, a, a two table union and uh, it was yeah, it was good. Not to pile on to the ecto love, but I do love ecto <laughs> and but I want to recognize though that like ecto isn't universally loved, right? It can seem verbose. You're, you know, you you do have to like repeat a lot of stuff every, like three times sometimes, right? You got to you got to state your your migration. You got to state your your schema. You got to you know copy the fields that you want to do in your change set. Your change set's probably going to do all you know cast all the fields in the schema that kind of stuff, right? It can be very verbose, and it seems to be everywhere in your project, which can make some people you know uncomfortable. And then there's always the question of like, well, my repo is global, so like, how do I get these? weird joins to cross these boundaries. You got to like tackle those little aesthetic kind of questions. Like, how do I, <laughs> how do I, how do I make this feel clean? So I, I get that like Ecto isn't going to be universally loved for, for everybody. So if that's you, I, I feel you, but you can still come to the light. Ecto <laughs> is still really supremely good. I feel like that's a good place to be though. Like when you get to the point where you're like, these weird little edge cases that you're trying to make elegant and clean. It's like, you know, you're finally to the point where you're like mastering the language or the library and you're really like digging into the things that are not in the documentation, right? They're not the basic posts have comments examples. I did want to touch on the entity relationship feature that you were talking about, Philippe. Most tools that I think people are familiar with are database tools and those are investigating and interrogating the database structure itself to derive these diagrams. But yours is actually built on the code, the Ecto schemas. And going back to Joel's point where you can have schemas that are form-based, there are embedded schemas that aren't actually around the database. They're just around validations and things like that. And those can actually be diagrammed. So just talk a little bit about why you chose to go off the schemas and what that lets you do. I chose that that path because honestly, it was the easiest one. I know from other experiments uh, that Ecto kind of retains everything uh, and is an all all seeing guy of anything database in my project, and I'm really happy for that because I know that all the relationships are stored there. Again, the, the the demo we did doesn't even have a database connected. The fact that we can do this even ad hoc. We don't need anything. We just need the schema. It means that, uh, like you've mentioned, we can do this with embedded fields. We can do this with virtual fields. We can do this, I don't know, even for form validation. We could even say, okay, what's the, 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 the flow of this validation? What's the flow of this form? And kind of go, this field connects to this field, this field, and that's without any database in the middle. And that for me is way more powerful. And the fact that I can decouple it completely from the database means that I don't need to do a Postgres adapter. I don't need to do a MySQL adapter. I don't need to do <laughs> an SQLite adapter. It's just there. Again, kudos to the, the people that built Ecto. We're basically, I'm feeling that we're riding on the shoulders of giants uh, <laughs> because they are the ones that really, I feel thought out of so much that we ended up being able to do this kind of stuff. They, they, they understood, okay, what do we need to retain about a certain schema? We need to retain this, this, and this information. What's the connections? What's the types? How they are, if they're generated or not. There's just a bunch of information they, they retain that's really powerful. So I thought, if I have this, I'm happy with this. I, I don't want to connect to anything to build out uh, the diagram. It really boiled down to that. It was the easiest, best solution I could think of. And... Uh, most of it due to the fact that Ecto is really well built and retains a lot of the information needed. 
Another point that I noticed was a lot of these features seem to be using smart cells. And what was that like, creating smart cells for displaying some of these things and visualizing it? Honestly, it was uh, easy because I took inspiration from the Twitter handle is Wubu Kokua, one of the contributors for what was some open uh, evision. And one of the tweets was about uh, smart cells and showing the result um, of a vision on a smart cell, if I'm not mistaken. I looked into that, okay, how, how is a smart cell built? I went into the code and after actually seeing the, the, um, the implementation, I thought, okay, this is actually quite manageable. So <laughs> I wouldn't say it was a copy paste. It was less than that because the code from a vision is way more complex. But we, we kind of understood that, yeah, this is after having the, the, the implementation, it's quite easy to actually understand what's happening and adding tabs and adding visualizations in it, it, it became quite intuitive. And that's basically the, the route we went. And most of it was copy paste from a vision, basically. And it wasn't, it wasn't difficult. It's actually quite easy to basically add tabs and just do stuff there. And one of the things we want to continue is just that smart cells, for example, for the change sets, uh, the change set validator. That was part of the goal. We weren't able to build it, but part of it was build a form out of the schema. And from that form of the schema, test out what the change set validator will say. And if it's valid or not, basically test out the possible values for it. So we, we started to dive a bit on that side of the smart cells, but we weren't able to do it. But overall, it really seems accessible and it's not tricky to, to develop smart cells, honestly. It used to be called Lively. Now it's called Kino Ecto. So it's a little bit more official. What's the future for for the, the for the project? You know, is this something that you guys are still you know continuing to hack hack away on? Is this like a, an ongoing project that you've you've got some like I don't know personal commitment? Are you looking for outside contributors? You know what? How how safe am I to use this? <laughs> how serious is this project? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I can only speak for myself, but I I think like with the name. It is. It feels like a bit more like we have some responsibility to at least like make sure like it works. <laughs> like, but also, I mean, I I would love for more like oh, like uh, have more contributors. For example, for sure, like that's I think a given. And definitely, I plan on continuing on the functionality we already started on. For example, for the explain stuff, I'd really love to support other databases than Postgres, for example, because that's a big limitation right now. So MySQL would be, I think, the next step that I'm already taking some small steps towards. But that's that's a good note. Yeah. Every everything we've talked about has been Postgres centric, at least when it hits the database. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I would wait a little bit maybe before using it in for your, I don't know, like work stuff maybe, but the risk is that we will change the APIs. That's a, that's a risk right now, but I have the like idea that when I want to continue working on it and developing it, maintaining it. That sounds encouraging. I know that um, in live books, uh, it's t- typical. I've seen this as typical. I don't know if everyone's doing this, but you could mix install and then you throw in the package, right? I don't know if this is actually published to hex, so I, you probably still have to put in the GitHub URL to get to get Kino Ecto. Since folks don't typically like put in a version or like a tag or anything, like it's just always going to be pulling main or master branch, right? And that's where those breaking changes can surprise folks. David has high expectations for your new alpha library. Here. <laughs> yeah, you got you to gotta get you got to get tags in there. <laughs> we we don't even have a CI set up, so yeah, we, we're we're getting there. We're getting there. I'd be I'd be happy to help. So. Jeez, it's a hackathon, David. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's this is an I I've, I find this a very important and very helpful library. So I am. I am happy for its future. I'm happy to help. I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a, a great boon to everybody that uses Livebook because ultimately, I think probably 80% of uh, of Elixir folks are probably going to be using Ecto at some point, right? So this can be helpful as well. So we talked about the explain feature quite a bit there, but I don't know that if someone isn't familiar with using a database explain, can you just kind of recursively, you know, can you explain explain? 
<laughs> like, like if someone hasn't run an explain on their query, what do they see? Like, what does this tell them? How does it help? Can you run an explain on explain? <laughs> it tells you what the database is planning to do with the query to uh, give you the results. Typically, you'd use it to debug or troubleshoot like performance bottlenecks with your queries. So if they're very slow, you can maybe find out that, oh, we don't have an index on this thing where, so it's going to scan the whole table to find it. Things like that, it's, it's good for. And to me, like looking at the actual text that you'd get back typically from Explain is kind of hard. And I think for most people, it is kind of hard. Even if you're like very experienced, I think it's hard because they can be huge, right? Like if your query is huge, the explain the, the query plan is usually very big. Visualizing that is extremely helpful, I think. And also you can add some heuristics to it. We have one <laughs> in the, in the uh, Kino explain, but you can potentially add lots of them, right? Like, oh, this is probably a pattern where you might want to look into uh, for whatever reason. So things like that you could highlight in, an, in a visualization of the plan. So it's really powerful, but without like some guidance or help, it can be very hard to actually understand. That's cool. I like the idea of using heuristics to kind of recognize patterns and say, oh, well, you're getting a full table scan here and you know, highlighting that and drawing attention to it to help the user quickly get to their problem. Right, yeah, exactly. Well, I, I've had a blast talking with you guys and I think your team... It sounds like you had a, a lot of fun working on this, either going hardcore on it or saying, you know, I have a life as well. But it sounds like it was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, it was a blast for sure. It was everything I expected, like working with great people, doing fun things. And again, I want to give a shout out to Tiago and Vittoria, who were also part of the team. Well, maybe by the time people hear this interview, that we'll already know who the winners are, but... You guys are winners in my book. You know, I think this is a great thing. And <laughs> I love that you guys did this. And that one that you're continuing on with it, you say, you know, this was, it was fun. It was a, a, a cool little experiment, but we do see value in this and we want to share. And I know David is interested in following up and contributing. And maybe there are other people out there who would like to contribute as well. Please do. Yeah. Yeah, that would be awesome because this is the four ideas we had. I'm pretty sure there are way more ideas out there. I would even challenge people to think about uh, outside of Vecto. One of the things we've mentioned was under the lively name, we could escape a bit from Ecto. And we even thought about, for example, Oban helpers, where you could visualize the jobs. There are other Ecto ideas. So think of added ideas that you could bring to Ecto, but also think of ways of using Lifebook uh, in a similar way. Well, thank you guys for coming and talking with us. I wanted to point out that there's also a blog post that you've put together documenting some of these things. And we'll have a definitely a link to that in the show notes, because it also includes a picture of the Kino Ecto Explain feature where you can start to get your head around what this does and see how this really can be something that's helpful. So thank you guys. I can't wait to see what you guys do with this in the future. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. But that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.